today I am here with Ian Clark, and Ian has uh, done a number of interesting things in the past, um, particularly around file sharing, and then also, I guess, uh, building an interesting video site. Um, and Ian's here to tell us a little bit about that, and also his latest startup. So um, he, he does have a little bit of a, an unfortunate accent, so I hope you can put up with the uh, Irishness here. But um, aside from that, he's a nice guy, and I'd like to introduce Ian Clark. <laughs> I will I will do my best to water down my accent as much as possible, <laughs> so that people can understand. As an understand Australian, it's my I'm on a bound to make fun of your accent. Touche. <laughs> <laughs> um, so tell us about yourself. Sure. Well, I am a, I'm an engineer by trade. I have a degree in artificial intelligence and computer science from the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. Um, uh, probably uh, the Initial project that really set my career trajectory was um, was and is a project called Freenet, uh, which grew out of some work I did at university on uh, decentralized systems. And Freenet is a 501c3 nonprofit, and the intent uh, was and is to allow people in countries like China and Saudi Arabia to exchange information without fear of censorship by their government. And uh, after, or rather, Freenet has kind of been an ongoing side project for me uh, for the last seven years. Uh, but in parallel with it, I've started several commercial ventures. Uh, the first was uh, called Upriser. Uh, Upriser developed a peer-to-peer -peer content distribution technology um, I left Upriser in 2002 and set up a consulting company called Somatics, and uh, probably the best-known project that Somatics worked on was with Yanis Friss and Nicholas Zenstrom. Um, the, they had previously founded Kazaa and Skype, and I worked on a peer-to-peer -peer video distribution technology that now forms... Uh, part of a piece of software called Juiced. Um, subsequent to that, um, I had always been very interested in the concept of how to allow people to monetize their creative efforts online. And uh, I realized that uh, uh, advertising uh, was a, not the first to realize this, but that advertising was a pretty effective way to do that. And together with two co-founders, we started a company called Rever. Uh, Rever was the first online video company to attach advertising to the end of videos and uh, share the revenue with content creators. Um, Rever raised, a, uh, so far, uh, $10 million in A and B round uh, financing. Um, I moved on from Rever uh, in December 2006 to start my current venture, uh, which is called Thoof, T-H-O-O-F. And uh, the idea of Thoof, very simply, is to figure out what people want and give it to them and offer that capability as a service uh, to third parties. 
All right, so that's a mouthful there. I got a, you've raised a million questions. I want to ask you about all this stuff. And I think that the, the kind of the funny thing is that you were telling me before we got started here that you were unsure whether you were really a fit for this call and you know, whether you've done the right stuff. And I think anyone listening can see that Ian's quite a stud um, and you've done some impressive things. So I want to ask you about them because uh, you've, you've done some very cool stuff. Um, <coughs> so I didn't know you, 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 what you did with Freenet and then learning about um, peer-to-peer sharing. That's actually become part of Juice. Um, no, uh, so Freenet has not become part of Juiced. Uh, the uh, thing that became part of Juiced uh, came quite a bit after Freenet. Uh, that was developed by my consulting company. I was, I was approached by uh, Yanis Friss. Um, he, this was actually before, shortly before they launched Skype. Um, Yanis approached me and asked me if I could build a technology that would distribute live video over a peer-to-peer network um, to minimize the central server bandwidth requirements, which is generally what peer-to-peer is good at in, in this type of scenario. And so I built a technology which did that over the next two years, and uh, we handed that off uh, in mid-2006 um, to a team, uh, to uh, the team that then became Juiced. So that project kind of is, is at the heart of what is now Juiced. And so you've written a bunch of code that Juiced, Juiced is now using? Uh, I believe so, yes. <laughs> I, I, hope they didn't, I hope they didn't rewrite it. <laughs> But yes, I, I, I believe they're now uh, using our peer-to-peer video distribution code. Cool. Um, and so that was you, that was just a consulting project you worked on for a year or so, was it? Yeah, that, that was that was about two years. Um, I kind of started off working on that full time. Then I kind of gradually got distracted more and more by Rever, uh, which was also kind of getting going around that time. All right, why don't you tell us a bit about Rever? I mean, as I, as I understand it, it's basically a YouTube clone with the differentiator that um, uh, people putting videos up there get uh, a, reven- a revenue share of, of the advertising money generated from their video. Is that a correct summary? Uh, pr- pretty correct. It, it, is, it is similar to YouTube in that it's kind of part of the latest crop of... Uh, video uh, sharing websites, although we did, we weren't aware of YouTube. Uh, we're, we were pretty well underway when, when YouTube launched, so it wasn't quite a, uh, quite a me too. Um, but did you yes. start before YouTube? Uh, we, we started working on it in uh, mid-2005, so yes, we, we'd kind of decided what we were going to build uh, before we long before we were aware of, of YouTube. Um, so how, when, you, when you started building it, how did you focus on driving traffic? Uh, so we, well, it was, so it was interesting. Our approach was, was different to YouTube and, and in retrospect, perhaps a mistake. Um, our hypothesis was that the way to build traffic is to form relationships with the creators. And this was kind of a big part of our motivation for, um, uh, this was a big part of our motivation for sharing revenue with the video creators. And we felt that uh, if we're 
financially incentivizing the creators, then they would, um, you know, we we would have the best content, and it's really the content that motivates people to come to your website. And subsequently, that's that's exactly what happened. Like some of our some of uh, Rever's biggest successes so far were. Um, a uh, group called EP Bird uh, created a uh, video that you, know, you you may you may recall from about a year and a half ago, where these guys in white lab coats stuck the Mentos, Mentos video, in. Mentos and Coke, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. man, I love that stuff. Yeah, and they they got onto like they were on the Letterman show and all all sorts of stuff, and we got a lot of traffic from that. Uh, Lonely Girl Fifteen. Uh, generated a lot of traffic for us, uh, Zay Frank. So what we found was that because uh, because wherever was and is the the website you go to if you actually want to get paid, we were able to attract these people who were you know uh, semi professional video creators. And uh, I think the problem that wherever always had was that this stuff would wind up on YouTube anyway because of YouTube's la- lax enforcement of of copyrights. So it wasn't quite as big a differentiator as, as we originally expected it to be. Hmm. In hindsight, um, how would you, if you were starting over, how would you uh, be driving traffic today? How well? I I think the 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 general the general approach was was pretty sound. Um, I think that we probably were a little bit late to market relative to YouTube. Um, so I think really really the the what would have helped us a lot would have been you know being four months earlier than we actually were. Um, Do you think it was just four months? You don't think it was anything else? Uh, I think. Well, I think that it was it was a combination of things. So I think it would have been helpful to be a, to be to get to market a little bit earlier. Uh, it would have been helpful to be more exclusively focused on the challenge of um, attracting eyeballs. Whereas w- instead of instead of focusing on the video consumer. Uh, exclusively, which is what uh, most other video sharing websites did, uh, at least from the first year of their existence, we were essentially we were focused on three constituencies. We were focused on the consumer. We were focused on the content. Cre- well, we were, our focus was split between the consumer, the content creator, and the advertiser. Uh, so, you know, we raised you know, a similar amount of money to some of our competitors, yet we were trying to, we were splitting our, our efforts between answering the needs of three types of user instead of just the video consumer. Right. Hey, um, it just a, a perspective that I have just from the, some of the people that I've talked to. I, I haven't gotten close to any of the YouTube guys, but um, I did an interview uh, a couple of months ago with the guy who founded You Send It. Mm-hmm. Um, which were, I think they were the ones that ended up hosting like the Iraqi video and all that kind of stuff, which is very much virally driven. And now he he runs Fly Upload, um, as well as uh, knowing just some of the guys in the Bay Area who really focus on viral marketing, which I know that, that the the YouTube guys did coming from PayPal. Is <coughs> everything they did was around virally driving traffic, 
Um, apparently, the only thing that really worked virally was the fact that they could embed videos in web pages. They, apparently, of all the different stuff that was tested, that was the only one that actually worked really, really well. Um, but then they had the other advantage, and this is what was really interesting from the you send it guy. He said that every file that gets uploaded to you send it, like a video or whatever, um, they'd encourage people to upload stuff and then put links in forums and all over the web and send it to their friends to download. And he said that the average upload, and this is the average across the entire you send it network, for every, uh, every upload, the average is 60 downloads. That's, a, that's network wide. So that means every file that gets uploaded, it's being introduced to 60 new people. And that's very pow- powerful viral marketing. And with uh, YouTube not doing, uh, not doing their copyright enforcement, you're then competing against Britney Spears and her videos getting uploaded. Um, you're not allowing that kind of stuff, as, as I understand it anyway, whereas they are. And so people are going in and searching and finding all that stuff. Um, and sort of their, their level of viralness is... Um, far stronger than yours, and so therefore their growth is, is orders of magnitude faster. Yes, well, well, I think it's, it's clearly an advantage if you're just going to ignore copyright. Um, I think our, our thinking at the time was that uh, YouTube was kind of destined to go down the route of Napster, which is, yes, they achieve viral growth because they're essentially, you know, uh, achieving it using material that they have not paid for and and they're not rewarding. Uh, The people who created the material are not getting paid for it. Uh, So it is is certainly a lot easier when when you're kind of able to piggyback on someone else's creativity in that regard. Um, But that was, to, to kind of do that would be very much antithetical to what we wanted to be as a company. Mm-hmm. So you, even even today, if you were starting over, and it were, we were back then when you were starting, you you wouldn't you wouldn't take that approach. I think uh, I think if uh, if we were if we were going to uh, get to market before YouTube uh, or at the same time as YouTube, and I think if um, if our goal was, you know, if we were aware that you could grow at the speed they grew and then get acquired before you know anyone really get anyone in the media really gets it together enough to to sue you you know then clearly those guys made a lot of money and and that will be a smart thing to do um but kind of given given what we wanted to be at that time and given our perception at that time that you know you can't just build a business that is predicated on violating copyright, um, it wouldn't have made sense. It turns out, you know, it turns out in retrospect that YouTube did build a business uh, largely predicated on violating copyright. Lax and le- legal lax enforcement. I mean, I think they are legal, but <laughs> it's it's in such a uh, it's such a gray area that you could drive a tank through it. Yeah, I mean, their their enforcement. So so. The area that they kind of live in is is the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, and and it's you could say it's lax enforcement, but the reality is that if they were if they were if they were effectively avoiding the distribution of copyrighted work for for, for which they did not have permission to redistribute, I think it it would have been a very different story. 
I mean, I'm, you think I'm you not... would have beaten them if they hadn't have, if they had been um, strict in enforcing copyright. Uh, yes, I think so, and I think that, or, or we would have beaten them if the uh, entertainment industry had been a lot faster to move against them. All right. But you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Oh no, absolutely, <laughs> no, no doubt about that. <coughs> and so you started then to. You, why did you leave that company? Why, why didn't you? Why didn't you stay on board? I mean, it's still a fairly successful company, is it not? It is. It is. Yes. Um, really, um, my my skill, and you know, at least the way I perceive myself, <laughs> rightly or wrongly, is is kind of as as a guy who. Uh, solves interesting and hard technology problems. And I, I think that Rever was kind of turning uh, into, it, it was kind of turning from the type of company where it's got a bunch of technology problems into the type of company where it's got a bunch of business challenges that needed to be addressed. And so uh, I felt that, um, it, you know, I felt that that kind of wasn't really my uh, core competency. And also I'd, I'd uh, developed an idea while at Rever, which I felt and feel was was extremely compelling and and addressing a pretty fundamental problem, and I wanted to pursue it. So, well, that's, uh, and that's a good lead-in, but I actually want to backtrack a little bit more before we talk about that because um, I don't want to go into that in more detail. I'd really yeah. actually like to really understand what you did with Freenet and oh, kind of sure. why that well, came about and what it's doing today and all that sort of stuff. Sure. Well, well, so Freenet. Um, uh, to give you the full story, um, while, at, while at university studying, I was studying artificial intelligence and, and computer science, I think I mentioned, and uh, from a technology standpoint, I was very interested in this area called emergent systems. So examples of emergent systems would include an ant colony or a flock of birds or any situation where you've got a bunch of individually simple components, but when they interact with each other, they exhibit sophisticated, um, complicated behavior. Um, and this fascinated me. And what fascinated me in particular was that nobody had really found much of a practical application for this in technology. Nature had found plenty of practical applications for, for emergent systems, but uh, engineers had not. Um, and so I was kind of really keen to find some kind of practical way to, to apply this concept. And at the same time, um, as I was learning about the Internet, and uh, you would hear people say things like, oh, you know, the Internet roots around censorship and, and all this type of thing. And, and it turns out that's just rubbish. Uh, the the internet is is very easy to censor. It's a lot cheaper to monitor people's email and other communications on the internet than in virtually any other medium. Um, and and I realized this, and I thought, you know, e even as people were living in this hippie kind of dream world where the internet would be the answer to the ultimate tool for freedom of speech. I really started to worry that that actually it could be the opposite. It could it could really be a means for control. And I started to think about you know maybe there's some kind of way that you could layer a technology on top of the internet that would allow people to communicate freely with each other without fear of censorship. And that means anonymously. You you 
if you're not anonymous or at least don't have the option of being anonymous, then you cannot communicate freely because you can be punished for what you say. So um, I realized kind of, you know, uh, had this epiphany that this these two things that I was thinking about, one on the political side and the other on the technology side with emergent systems, could be combined. And that you could build something that was almost operated like an ant colony of software sitting on top of the Internet that would allow people to exchange information securely, uh, anonymously, in a completely decentralized manner, just just like an ant colony, um, and that that so kind of my two. How do you mean exchange information anonymously, like an ant colony? Well, it's decentralized, like an ant colony. Uh, it, it doesn't exchange information anonymously. Uh, like so there's no central server. There's no central central point to it all. All the decisions are all just made locally by the the players as they exactly. as they go about their day. Exactly, just like an ant colony or a flock of birds. And, and it's essential to avoid any kind of centralization because any kind of centralization can be used to um, attack or shut down the system. So, I so I've, I've read about that sort of stuff for a number of years, and I haven't, I haven't um, seen Freenet out there. As, I've, I've certainly followed your work for a long, a long time now, probably eight years or something like that. I've been seeing what you're doing. Um, but I don't, I don't see Freenet being talked about as, as this big thing. What, what is the actual end result? I mean, does it, does it actually work properly when you don't have a decentralized core? Does it just mean that uh, everything's slow? Uh, it, so it actually it does work well. Uh, I mean, it's hard to build a decentralized system which scales. Um, but uh, And this was kind of part of what was hard about Freenet. So... We published a paper describing essentially our, our, what we had developed, which was a decentralized, scalable way to exchange information. We published that paper back in 2000 and actually was the most cited computer science paper of that year. Although at the same time, kind of Freenet was weird because we were getting a lot of attention in the mainstream press uh, with mainly around the area of copyright, like how can you enforce copyright on a system where people can exchange information anonymously and, and where the system cannot be shut down. Um, but it also generated interest in the academic press, and, and Freenet was uh, an early example of what later became known as a, decent, uh, a distributed hash table. Um, which is something that you kind of hear about quite a lot these days in, in computer science circles. Um, can you tell us what a distributed hash table is? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, so a hash table in computer science is, is it's a bit like a phone book. It's a, it's a data structure where you give it a key, let's say someone's name, and it'll give you a corresponding value, which is, let's say, their phone number. And hash tables are kind of a key component of pretty much any piece of software that that you care to see. A distributed hash table is a hash table where the data is distributed over a large number of computers. 
so instead of keeping everything in, in one centralized place, it's actually distributed, you know, might be distributed among thousands of computers. And uh, it distributed hash, th- this whole concept grows out of uh, something called uh, small world theory. Uh, so you're probably familiar with the concept, the concept of a small world or the six degrees of separation. Mm-hmm. Um, and this comes from the idea that uh, it's been discovered that you can get from any one person to any other person in about six steps, uh, just going, uh, just traveling along uh, relationships between those people. And this is the premise. This is why websites like LinkedIn uh, and similar sites work quite well. Um, but there's a whole area of mathematics uh behind small world theory and it turns out that not any network if you just take a bunch of things and randomly connect them together they won't necessarily have this small world property but human relationships do have a small world property and uh, this whole kind of uh, this whole kind of concept of, of small world theory and the mathematics behind it is the uh, underpinnings of both Freenet and, and uh, the other distributed hash table technologies that followed it. Hmm. So, what does it mean in the real world? Like, um, is, is Freenet? Does that become like a, a, a? Is that HTTP and FTP and other types of services that browse that work on top of the internet that I can then use in an anonymous fashion? Uh, yes. So. Uh, you can use uh, HTTP with Freenet, so you can search surf Freenet just as you would surf the World Wide Web, and you can actually use an ordinary web browser to do it. It is slower than the World Wide Web because um, there's a lot of cryptography going on, and, and uh, you're, you're generally your computer is talking to other people's computers directly, which is slower than talking to, let's say, Google's centralized servers, but yeah, so you can uh, you can use it over H- you can use HTTP over Freenet, um, and uh, people have experimented with uh, SMTP, the email protocol over Freenet, and others as well. So Freenet is in itself a platform, and you can implement other services on top of Freenet, and people do. How does it compare with Tor? Uh, it is. Addressing a similar problem to Tor, um, however, its its approach is quite different. So, with Freenet, any participant, anyone who installs the Freenet software becomes part of the Freenet network. With Tor, there is still a separation between clients and servers. So, Tor has a list of uh, I'm not sure what it is now. Last time I looked, I think it was about 600 servers around the world, and when you connect to the Tor network, you're connecting to one of these servers. So uh, Tor is is more, more of a client-server model than, than Freenet. Mm, okay. And so let's say I'm, I'm in China and I, I want to um, browse stuff that's against the Chinese government. Is that a safe thing to do, to sit there and, and do that over Freenet? Uh, it's it depends on your definition of safe. We don't we don't guarantee that 
you are 100% secure, but what we do is we say that it's safer than the alternatives. Um, so typically, what people in China do uh, when they're not using a system like Freenet is they will connect via uh, short-lived HTTP proxies where they really have very little protection from the Chinese government. The, it, as soon as the government becomes aware of these proxies, they can either shut them down immediately, very easily, or more insidiously, they can kind of sit there and watch who is connecting to these pro proxies. So uh, we don't claim that Freenet is, is perfectly secure or that it is impossible that anyone would discover what you're doing with Freenet. But what we do say is, you know, look, here, here are the things that people are actually doing today, and these things are incredibly unsafe and incredibly insecure, and Freenet is a hell of a lot better than that. And so from doing what you did with Freenet, how did, how did that come that the guys from Juice came to talk with you? I mean, you hadn't done video at that point, or, or is that you had started with video then with, with Reva? Um, no, so, so uh, I, I got to know Yanis and Nicholas um, uh, really because, you know, we, we both created peer-to-peer uh, -peer technologies, and so we got, we got to know each other that way. Um, Nobody had really built a um, uh, an effective peer-to-peer -peer video distribution system, so so there really wasn't much precedent for doing what we wanted to do. But I'd built peer-to-peer -peer systems before, and uh, at Upriser, I'd built a peer-to-peer -peer content distribution system, and so it, it wasn't that big a leap from there to video. And so, I mean, in the real world, does that really work, watching TV and having it distributed across other machines? Does it work well enough to be usable on a day-to-day -day basis? Uh, I, believe, I believe it works well. Uh, I believe it's working well for Juiced. Um, I think, uh, uh, in fact, uh, I mean, I've been pr pretty busy, so I haven't followed their progress that closely, but I, I believe that uh, they had some problems a couple of months ago uh, where part of their network went down, and it, it actually turned out that it was the part of their network that was being served from central servers went down, and the part of their system that still worked was was the peer-to-peer -peer aspect of it. Uh, so, so I, I think so far, uh, Juiced is having a good experience with with the peer-to-peer -peer approach. Hmm. And I guess maybe it works better because it's 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 broadcast and not it's not transmissions back and forth, and so there's less stress on the system, latency becomes less of an issue. Yes, exactly. Well, yes, so, so it's broadcast. Um, it means that the, the clients in the system can kind of build up a buffer of data. So it, they can buffer like, you know, five or ten seconds of video, which means that if a piece goes missing, they have time to try to replace it. Um, right. And if they can't replace it, it's not the end of the world because most video protocols are are tolerant of loss, tolerant of data right. loss. So, um, why don't you just uh, tell us a little bit about the startup you're doing now and the, the kind of uh, problems that you're working on solving today? Sure. So, um, really, the the basic idea behind Thuf is is to figure out 
um, quickly what people are interested in, then present them with uh, things that will appeal to them. Um, I did some work on this type of thing at Rever, where, of course, we were very interested in figuring out what kind of videos people were interested in and presenting those videos to them. And I actually developed uh, two uh, collaborative filters, which is kind of the the classic way to solve this problem. I developed two collaborative filters for Rever, uh, one of which we licensed to a company called Reddit, which was later purchased by Condé Nast. Um, and I realized while kind of working on this problem at Rever that actually collaborative filters were not a good solution. Um, and that kind of made me realize that, that there was a real opportunity to create a uh, type of recommendation engine that addressed what I perceived to be the key problems with collaborative filters. That's and totally contrary to what I'm seeing. I mean, as a, one, one of the best examples I can think of is Pandora, which started out with its music recommendations based around the content of the music and finding music with similar rhythms. And I think they admitted, I don't know, six, six to 12 months ago that they realized that, in fact, that wasn't going to provide the best recommendations and they're moving more towards a collaborative filtering model. If collaborative filtering isn't the best way, what is? Well, the key problem with collaborative filtering, and I'm, I'm not saying that collaborative filtering doesn't work. I'm saying that it, it has one, it, it has a key flaw, which is that Collaborative filters require a lot of data about users before they can effectively recommend to those users. Now, in some applications, that's not a serious problem. Um, so, for example, if you're Amazon and you've got a very large user base and you can collect a lot of behavioral information about each of your users, then that's probably pl that's plenty enough uh, information for a collaborative filter to figure out what those users are interested in. But most people are not in Amazon's situation. Most people have relatively little information about individual users and that, and for them, collaborative filters are uh, of limited use. They, they, typically, collaborative filters will they'll do one of two things. So they'll use a user-based collaborative filter, uh, which works by identifying similar users and then identifying, looking at what those users like that you haven't seen yet and recommending those things to you. And that requires a lot of data before they can effectively find users that are similar to you. The other kind of collaborative filter works by uh, is actually actually quite quick, uh, but the reason it's quick is that it pigeonholes the user, uh, so it will kind of assign properties to the user. So Pandora's uh, previous algorithm that, uh, the, as you said, you know they they admit that there are problems with it, fell into this category. So you know in Pandora's case, it might decide that you like female vocalists and that you like, you know, this type of beat, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the problem with that is that it'll kind of rapidly get into the ballpark of what you're interested in, but then it'll 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 essentially pigeonhole you. Uh, sorry for the mixed metaphor, but you get pigeonholed inside a ballpark, um, and it yeah, and you're essentially stuck. 
Um, so I can't handle attention here. Tell me, what is it that's better? <laughs> so, so the different the difference with Thuve's approach is that it's able to figure out what you're interested in based on relatively little data, and based upon the type of data that, let's say, a website will have about a user right from the first moment that user visits a website or very shortly afterwards. So it's it's kind of like a, a meat grinder algorithm where you can give it whatever information uh, uh, is available to you about users, and it could be anything from this guy's a Firefox user, this guy's running Windows XP, this guy got here by clicking on a link on Boing Boing, this guy's geographic location is this, this uh, this person just purchased this thing. Uh, this person, this was the first thing they clicked on. So literally any kind of information you happen to have about the user, you can feed into this algorithm. And the algorithm will spot patterns in user behavior um, and use those patterns to, to come up with an initial picture of what your interests are. And then as that user continues to use your website, you can feed in additional behavior that you collect about this user um, that uh, they, will, they will find, you know, that will refine the system's idea of, of what that user's interest is. Is, is this predictive analysis um, type stuff, uh, like scorecarding, that kind of thing, or is it something totally different? Uh, it's it's uh, related to the... It's related to predictive analysis. So, so basically, it's it's a, it's a inference engine of sorts. Uh, it looks for uh, correlations in user behavior and combines that with an ontology of information about uh, the things that are being recommended. So, we we actually built a news website. Uh, as a way to kind of test this algorithm and, and demonstrate it. And so, for example, on, on our news website, let's say, uh, let's say you click on a story about Hillary Clinton, then you click on a story about Barack Obama. Um, what it would do is not only kind of do the naive thing, which is, okay, this person is more likely to be interested in Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, but it also looks at, well, well, who is Hillary Clinton? Who is Barack Obama? What do they have in common? Well, they're both 2008 Democratic presidential candidates. And it would make the inference that what you're actually interested in is 2008 Democratic presidential candidates. So it's, it's using the knowledge that it has about metadata and how the, me- the metadata... Um, is associated with other metadata in order to very quickly come up with theories about what it is you're interested in. So in advertising context, this could work. An interesting um, thing I've been seeing people talking about on the net lately is um, the the good advertising is advertising that you don't notice. And I think Mm -hmm. the the prime example of that is Google's pay-per-click ads. I mean, those ads, when you see them there, they add value to what you're doing. And so we want them there. And generally, I think... If people have the choice between seeing those ads or not seeing them, I think generally people will choose to see them because they add value. So that, that kind of concept is, going to, is, is trying to be applied to behavioral targeting on the web so that as you're browsing the web, all of the banner inventory that you're seeing, instead of it being you know, retarded punch-the-monkey type ads, 
that you're actually seeing ads that add value to what you're doing, <coughs> and 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 relate to what you do, relate to what you what you're looking for. Um, so there's a company called Blue Lithium that has has gone into a fair direction with that, and they've been acquired by uh, Yahoo. Yes, is what you're talking about something that can be applied in that kind of context? Yes. Yeah, so so what what we are doing when when it's it's kind of a horizontal technology, so it doesn't really care what it's recommending. But in a scenario where it's being applied to recommend advertising for users, it is a form of behavioral targeting, and so it's similar to Blue Lithium or Dakota or Turn or um, a number of these companies. What's distinct about our technology, or at least we believe it's distinct about our technology, of course these guys don't exactly come out and uh, tell you exactly how their stuff works, so it's hard to say anything definitive, but um, what, what I've noticed with a lot of these behavioral companies is they still kind of make this assumption that we've got a fair amount of information about users, and the way they justify that assumption is that you know, they say, well, you know, if we're widely deployed, then, you know, we can we can tie users together, even if it's the same user but on different websites, uh, and so we'll be able to collect enough information about users to recommend effectively or to target effectively. And so, in a, in a sense, it seems like they, they may have the same problem that collaborative filters do, which is that they, they kind of have a, a, a bootstrapping issue in that uh, they need to be very widely deployed in order to get enough information about users to recommend effectively. So our approach is tackling, uh, when applied to advertising, it, it is behavioral targeting. The difference is that we kind of, uh, we're kind of humble in the sense that we don't assume that we're so widely deployed that when we see a user you know, we've got a bucket of information about them. We assume that we, we may have very little information about them. And our technology is optimized to taking that small amount of information and turning it into a useful profile of what is this user most likely to find interesting. <coughs> so in a case, in a case where, where we do have a lot of information, for example, we're Amazon.com and we're launching some new type of behavioral targeting of something, some kind, the fact is, uh, even though we don't have much data to, today, we can turn it on and tomorrow we're going to have a lot of data. So in those kind of instances, would you suggest that traditional collaborative filtering is, is enough? But in a, in a case of a startup that's just getting going that doesn't have a lot of data, then, then your solution is appropriate. Well, I think our, our solution is more differentiated in a, in a scenario where you don't have much information. But uh, I think it, it's hard because we, we, are, we are pretty young, and so it's, we, we don't have solid numbers, uh, comparative numbers to point to. But I do believe that, that our technology will bring something new to a scenario where you do have, have a lot of data. And so I believe that it will be uh, extremely competitive with existing behavioral targeting solutions, even in scenarios where you do have a lot of information, uh, but I don't yet have the data to prove it. Right, okay. And can you talk about exactly how, how you're basing that, or is that, uh, is that the, the secret sauce? Well, it, 
it is it is it is the secret sauce so i i i can't go into i can't go into too much detail but but i can kind of uh what i can say is is that what distinguishes us is uh firstly the fact that our system has a pretty good understanding of what is being recommended so i kind of gave i gave the example uh in the case of news how it would actually understand that a news story was about Barack Obama and it would understand who Barack Obama is and it's able to draw inferences on that basis. Um, now, in the case of, let's say, product recommendation, uh, the, the metadata that you would have about the product, perhaps its color, perhaps its price, its manufacturer, obviously, and other relevant characteristics about the product uh, you would tell, you would give this information to our algorithm, and it would actually be able to use that metadata instead of just looking at the product as kind of here is item three eight seven five four five, and the only thing you really know about it is who bought it and who didn't. Uh, so. It's. I, I believe that. I believe we're bringing something new uh, to a scenario where you have a lot of user behavioral information as well, uh, but we're we're still too young to prove that. But certainly in the case where um, you, where a licensee of our technology needs to deal with users that they may never have seen before and they want to recommend effectively to users that they have not seen before, that's really where our technology is, is primarily differentiated. So if I want to come to you and license your technology, how does that work? So we have uh, we have an API, uh, XML RPC API, uh, which is we've worked hard to make it very easy to integrate with. Um, you sign our license agreement and uh, uh, we give you access to this API and then whether your site is built in Java or PHP or Ruby on Rails or whatever it is, all of, all of those platforms are very easy to integrate with XML RPC. Um, and very, very simply, you just send us the information that you send us whatever information you have and you send us information about whatever it is you're recommending to users, be it products or be it ads or be it news stories, and we will send you back a list of, the for a given user, we will send you back a list of the things that that user is most likely to find interesting. Along do you with, end up teaching it things within different niches, or do you, is it just generic? It will learn within different niches. So when you deploy it on your website, it might take an hour or two to learn about your user base and learn about the the products that you're recommending. So it adapts to particular niches. Uh, it's generic. It's a generic technology in and of itself, and it adapts automatically. We don't have to go in and tell it, you know, all about you as a licensee. It will learn. Uh, about you and and 
hate but, is uh, in, the, in the example you used earlier, like of, of clicking on a Hillary news item and then an Obama news item, how yep. does how does it learn then that they're they're both uh, Democrat contendees for the presidency? Oh, I see. So so in that in that situation, we tell it. Yeah. So so that kind of the the ontology. Uh, so we call that our our ontology, um, and we have a huge database of data about data, and literally any topic you can imagine, um, our system will understand that top. You know, will know what it is. Will if if you give it a the name of a tree. Uh, it'll know it's a tree. It'll know what phylum it's in. It'll it'll know what trees are similar, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, we already have a massive database of information about every topic under the sun, um, and that's kind of what's used. So, so that's not the and then the system will kind of augment that and and adapt it. On the fly, but we, we've already got that. Okay, so uh, let's say I come to you then, and, and I, and I want to work with you, and I understand the technology. How, how do you charge me? How, do, how much does it cost? Well, so we're—I uh, I can't disclose—I uh, can't disclose our charging structure. Um, uh, but if if uh, that that's kind of later in the process, and it kind of depends on the specific vertical as well, because. Uh, different verticals have different economics, but the the basic approach is uh, we would charge you much like, uh, and this may or may not be a flattering way to describe it, but we charge you in much the same way that a cell phone carrier charges you. So it's uh, it's on the basis of usage, and then a component of the charging structure is on the basis of how effective the technology is. So. Are people actually buying the products that we're recommending? Are people actually clicking on the things that we're that we're recommending? So it's a pay-per-use structure, but but I, I can't get into the actual numbers. And I guess you're just getting started. But you're you're obviously a funded startup. Um, but at some point, would you be would you be open to licensing the whole thing out as well, or is it all going to be pay-per-usage? Uh, uh, well, as, as you say, we're 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 pretty we're pretty early in the game, so uh, you know, I, I it, it would it would depend on uh, it would it would depend on the deal, right? Cool. Um, Anything else sure. you'd like to add in in closing that we haven't talked about that we should? Um, I I don't think anything springs to mind. Cool. Well, Ian, thanks very much for making time. Thank you very much. Okay, I just turn that recorder off. Good stuff, dude. That was a great interview. Oh well, thank you. I I was really interesting. I hope um, I didn't ramble. <laughs> you did, but it was interesting rambling. That's why, because otherwise I would have jumped in and like asked more questions. But you, what you're talking about was really interesting stuff. Oh, uh, good, good job. Good. <laughs> and it's possible some of my guys could be interested in licensing that. Um, you know, we'll see once it goes out there, see what they they come to. But um, you know, there's there's, there's definite potential there. I guess well, you, you uh, talked with Martin a little bit about working with him. Sure, sure. Yeah, so Martin, uh, I've come off the record, um, Martin, uh, we're, we're in a conversation about him uh, being one of our licensees, and maybe, maybe he mentioned that to you. Um, yeah, that's what he said. Yeah, so 
it's a, it's interesting but you know we're we're we are early stage and and you know i we're we're in a learning process and i'm fairly new to i'm fairly new to to uh in particular the the kind of uh product recommendation behavioral targeting markets so i'm you know very interested in having conversations with people and and learning more about it all right well what i mean so you understand what i do and how this works <laughs> is um i i basically help i drive referrals um i if you've read um uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, he talks about connectors. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm a connector, and I just know a lot of people, and I use these interviews to kind of help uh, push that as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so <coughs> there'll, be a, there'll be a cocktail happening at AdTech, which is a big advertising conference in April in San Francisco, which you'll be invited to. I have oh. people then that pay to become members of my program. They get um, these interviews. They get four to five of these sorts of interviews every month. Uh, mm-hmm. with the full audio, the transcript, and then the, the contact information. And I can, I can be there to help facilitate something. So, for example, let's say a guy really liked what you spoke about, um, but he, he may be in doing something completely different and not able to communicate with you. And, you know, I, I understand a little bit about your space, and I've mm-hmm. uh, spent a fair amount of time in open source and free software, and, you know, I get on well with Richard Stallman. So I can sometimes... Oh, I my help. God, you're the one... I, no, well, I, I, I'm exaggerating there, so I'll say <laughs> I told him. <laughs> yeah, good, good call. You Someone called me out on that. Someone gets on well with it. Richard Stallman? I don't I, know. Okay, sometimes I get on well with him. I've, I've gotten pretty pissed off with him, too. <laughs> but you're, you're exactly right to call me on that. But no, I do. I, I mean, I can send him email and get answers from him and you know, yeah. occasionally get help from them with stuff, um, and I've, I've helped him with some bits and pieces. So, I, I, yes, yeah, so that's an absolute exaggeration, but you make a good point. Um, and what so what guys do that join my program is um, they pay me uh, it's, it's 9.95 a month for, effectively for these kinds of referrals. And this is not something that I'm pitching to you. I just want you to be aware that it's there. Um, mm-hmm. you, you'll be invited to come to the cocktail. Uh, you get basically get one free, and so you can come in uh, San Francisco and, and meet these guys. And if you oh, want to yeah. get involved, you, you can. And if you don't want to be involved, that, that's fine too. But just so that you know that it's there. Oh well, well I I really appreciate that and. And in a kind of scenario where um, uh, you're kind of facilitating people to talk to each other, how how do people make that worth your while? How are, how are you rewarded for your efforts? <coughs> That's where they join my program and they pay me nine ninety five a month. Oh, um, I see. and so then as I find stuff. So in this in this case, like for yours right now. Um, I, it's, what you've talked about is something I've never heard of before, but I'll just take that away and think about it. And if, if I can think of any of my guys who that's going to add a ton of value to them, and I know that's a problem that they're trying to solve, I'll, I'll introduce them to you. And I'll say, here's why you should talk to Ian and, you know, you know go, and, go and have at him. Um, you're then on the outside of the network, and so I'll bring stuff to, for guys when it's a value to them. If you become a part of this, then I'll be more actively thinking on how can I uh, pull, drive business towards you as well. I understand. Well, well, that that definitely sounds interesting. I mean, to be to be honest with you, we're 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 kind of still pretty in scrappy startup mode, so um, it may be a little bit early for us for that type of thing. But it, I think it, it would definitely make a hell of a lot of sense, perhaps after we've raised our our next round of funding. Sure. Well, um, you know, it'd be, it'd be an honour to have you involved. Um, going through the conversation that we just had, the, the, the referral that stands out, that if, if there's any way you can pull off, would be awesome. Um, the, the Skype guys, is there any chance you could get, get me an interview with either of those guys? I could try. They're, they're, uh, um, 
they're kind of as you might imagine it's 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 extremely difficult to to get them to agree to anything like that they they're uh they're really bombarded um so i i would i i won't make any promises but i will uh i'll put an email and see what happens um but i've 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 tried before without success um to uh to kind of uh uh get them into con- not not what you're doing but similar things and it's from their point of view they i think they feel a bit besieged um I can so imagine. I, I, well all i'm asking is for an hour on the phone with either of them um there's no yeah. charge there's no yeah. pressure to do anything it's just uh, an interview um but it, what it does do and they they had people out at adtech in san francisco it puts them in front of some of the the absolute top people in the advertising community because they're yeah. all on my list yeah. Yeah, I will. I, I think it it should it should be interesting to them, um, and I will. I'll put in an email. I'll also give it some thought about um, other people. Um, I I do know Bram Cohn. Uh, I don't know him that well. Um, I've kind of met him a few times at conferences and things. But I could I could put an email into him. Okay. Um, he would. I know he's um, he's got Asperger's, so I guess he's a little bit like Stallman. Do you think he would be a, an easy interview, or would he be a little bit difficult? Uh, yeah, good question. Um, I I don't know. I I, I probably not too bad because your your style is kind of straight to the point, um, which I think he might appreciate. I mean, you you kind of ask pretty straight questions, um, which I think might actually work well he's he's kind of you know he's uh you know he he tends to kind of what what's difficult for him is if people beat around the bush oh yeah um, yeah but if if people get straight to the point um you know if people ask, if you ask him a straight question he'll give you a straight answer and it'll it'll generally be uh all right well i mean well, yeah right. if you can introduce me to him that would be great who who would be someone else that comes to mind especially what are interesting are guys that are, are running stuff that has a lot of traffic although i guess since you're in the p to p world i mean i mean maybe even any of the the major p to p clients that would be interesting because i don't know anyone in that world at all how about um i know the guys behind limewire oh yeah that'd be awesome um i could I could ask them. I also know, um, I know the guys behind StumbleUpon. Yeah. Uh, which was sold to eBay. They're kind of, they're kind of in crazy land as well. I think they're kind of in, you know, crap. We've been acquired and <laughs> everything's gone crazy land. Um, All right. So I, I'm, I'm not sure about them, but I think the LimeWire, the LimeWire guys are pretty accessible in, in my experience. You know, again, those guys would probably find it interesting because they're, they're always looking for advertisers, and I've got yeah. a whole lot of advertisers on my list. Yeah, let me, uh, let me just make a quick note so I don't forget. Uh, I'll try Yanis, although I'm, I'm not optimistic about him. Lime. LimeWire, I'll give a shot, um, and I'll try Bram. Yeah, and awesome. uh, I can't make any promises, but but we'll see no, what totally comes understand. out of it. And the best way we found is just sending them an email and copying me, and then I'll follow up with them. Um, okay, but you know, however you're comfortable with is fine. Okay, well, I, I may just send Yanis a, a, a private email first because I think he he might feel pressured otherwise. Um, okay, um, but 
Well, we'll see, but I'll, I'll, I'll think about how best to do it in each case. Sure thing. And um, is it okay if I go ahead and add you to my list of interviews so you see them as I publish them each week? Absolutely. Cool. Well, thank you very much for your time, sir. It was, uh, that was a really good interview. I really enjoyed it. Oh, well, I'm glad. Thank you. 